Hello and welcome to another episode of Tales in Our Times. I'm George, I'm the one who reads the spooky stuff. I'm Janet, or if you're George, I'm Mum, I don't read the spooky stuff. And uh, good day, good morning, good evening, whatever time of day it is, wherever you are, you are welcome. We've got to get all our salutations off now. Make salutations, sure we're, felicitations. We're playing to the entire audience, yes, yeah. Around the time zones. I like also, the spooky idea for me is calling you by your first name. That's the spookiest thought I could read of all time. Is it? No, but <laughs> I mean, it might be. I, I don't know if I've been very, yeah, a little bit. I don't know how spooky I am, but anyway. <laughs> Here we are. Listeners, I think terrifying. Hello and welcome back. I think this is episode 16, you know. I also think that is true. Oh my. That's kind of nuts. Giddy Ann, that's crazy. Wow, look at us go. Um, and you know, we're kicking it off with kind of an exciting new change. We're now available on Google Podcasts. So if Spotify doesn't float your boat, you can scoot on over there and listen to your favorite show. Maybe give us a fun little review. I don't know. Leave us your thoughts, whatever you want. Email, send me a note. I like notes. I don't get posts anymore, but. You know, I'll take it on the digital <laughs> format, if you must. Anyway, so today we're going to be talking about a narrative that's near and dear to my heart. But before we do that, let's uh, let's do a little reading check-in. Mom, what are you reading? So I'm still reading The Return of Faraz Ali by Amin Ahmad. Um, but just because I, I don't know, not... Well, you know, we had a big storm last week on Thursday and took trees down in the backyard. So I've been doing a lot of work in the backyard. And um, yeah, so there. Uh, So I'm still reading the same thing. I'm just getting through it slowly. Apologies. How dare you? I've also got waiting, things waiting that I want to read. (laughs) Always something in the queue. Always. We've been accused before about being a little bit ridiculous with our um, pace. So yeah, somebody has said that. Slow it down a little bit. Well, I hope you're enjoying it. I love that one. What about you? What are you reading, George? I'm reading the Final Girl Support Group by Grady Hendrix. It's a oh, novel. Yeah, oh. it's Grady Hendrix of the Reading Festival, reading Festival that we, we previously missed. attended. Um, so basically, this is a, a thriller paying tribute to the concept of the Final Girl in horror movies um and essentially it's uh about a group of final girls who have all been in therapy uh therapy together for years and years after experiencing you know the the horrors of a horror movie and surviving wow that's quite contrived what's that mean sort of complicated complex you know like layers upon layers and layers it's like you know complicated that's true yeah i guess you do definitely need to have an understanding of the final girl trope from horror but i think yeah which i didn't have a clue about what you were talking about so (laughs) (laughs) absolutely the final girl being like the survivor in a horror film exactly there's always if the way it's explained in the book is you know the the murderer has killed the jock, the popular one, the stoner, the why wouldn't you nerd? Oh, they're all irritating. Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, go And on. the final girl is typically like this. Pretty and thin. Weird, yeah. Oh, like a weird. virgin. Like, well, oh, just like. Weird virgin. It's like, <laughs> the two things go <laughs> a together. A lot of virgins are weird. Um, but no. <laughs> no, are but I mean, really? it's like, there's always like a pure, ah, like, aspect to her character. Okay. Um, okay. Until she chainsaws the head off of the baddie. Uh, anyway, that's too much time for just this book, yeah. but I am really enjoying it. I'll let everyone know uh, how I'm, how I get on with it. I love uh, to hear the smile in your voice. I think that's very telling, and it really comes uh, across on the audio. So just well, if if you didn't know before, listeners, now you know. That's what it sounds like when I'm happy. Happy. Ugh, um, so that's enough for the book check for the reading check in. Mum, have we got any news? We've got some news. As always, um, you know, we like to keep an eye on what's happening in the world of literature from different uh, points of view. We've talked several times about um, libraries doing whack it. Well, not libraries, but counties and states doing wackadoodle business with their libraries. Um, mm. We did talk about that on our last episode, I think. There was a county in Texas or somewhere that was closing its library so they could go through the catalogue to see which ones they were going to remove. So, apparently there is more fallout. Yeah, yeah, there's more fallout from this, like, you know, inclination to ban books. Uh, There are at least 10 states that have seen library boards um, withdrawing from the American Library Association, the ALA, um, in response to the latter's defence of the books that the conservative conservative government is trying to ban. Um, yeah. Chief among these and pertinent for today dis- today's discussion. Oh, here's a big spoiler alert, boys and girls. Well, it's um, on the title of the episode, I know, isn't man. it? Yes, that's <laughs> I true. Know, I know. Oh, yeah, that's. I don't. You know, I don't even think about that when we're recording it. That when we post it, <laughs> they've actually got title. No. We oh, always hide it until uh, about 10 minutes in, as if it's not on the top. Yeah, okay. press on it. Whatever. <laughs> well, I'm going to start putting the wrong titles on episodes then. Just do first. Just okay. really misleading. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's so funny. Anyway, um, so uh, one of the things that is uh, being banned, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, with zeal or um mm. excessively is pertinent to today's uh episode uh, gender queer by maya kababi uh graphic novel detailing oh, babe, I think. oh babe beg my pardon yeah, yeah. Thank no you you're right oh babe um graphic novel novel details experience with gender expression what that means for them um it's a really really lovely story Nothing inappropriate. Here's the thing. Um, you know, what? it's like you can wipe out a whole genre of literature simply because you don't like the population and all of the sort of nonsense surrounding it that it deals with, regardless of what the story is telling. The story could have been saying, you know, a guy was taking his dog for a walk and he met his friend Michael and they went off into the sunset, lived happily ever after, and people would still object to it. Oh, we're banning that one. We're taking it out of the library. Forget That's it. Disgusting. So, Reverse. you know, it's just so ridiculous in the 21st century that people are responding like that. So, 
you know, once again. And so this particular thing it is the American Library Association. So it is in this country. Um, so it's like, the, you know, basically Republican. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to generalize, but I'm thinking. Well, know, I mean, the Tories are doing. You know, it's just, it's shocking, isn't it? Oh, conservatives are tosspots. Uh, Who knew? Who knew? Anyway, on a lighter note, um, Sarah Pascoe, who is a British comedian and actress, published her novel Weirdo. Is do you know if that is um, a like a memoir, Georgia, or is it a? No, narrative? no, it's fiction. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, it's about. Uh, it's like, it's just uh, as far as I could tell, it's just about a strange, socially awkward woman, um, and it's very funny. And it, if you've ever, if you've ever seen Sarah Pascoe on the television, um, she she is very funny, and she's she is hilarious. a bit quirky, but she she's hilariously yeah. funny. So. Um, I think that that would definitely be a recommendation. So look yeah, out for that book. Weirdo peoples. Okay. So anything else for the news? Um, did I have something? No, probably not. I, I oh well, I did have um, Chuck. Why can I never remember his name? Uh, Palmic. Thank you. Uh, his new book was uh, released. Oh, that's right. On September 5th, and the title of it is oh God. Here, Here Not... <laughs> I'm going to have to look it up. Please bear with me. I it's thought more I... fun to hear you saying swear words under your breath while you try and remember it. I'm, I thought that I'd written it down and made note of it because I heard this fantastic interview with him the other day on the radio, and which is what pricked my ears up to it and um i kept thinking oh you must write that down here we go this is what it's called it's called um not forever but for now not forever but for now right ah well done george you beat me to the title so that's the title and um what one of the other reasons it grabbed my attention is that it's set in wales in the united kingdom about these two brothers um but, uh, I, you know, he is, and if you didn't know, I'm sure you, anybody listening to this who's as, you know, interested in what we talk about as we are, probably knows who he is. He is yeah, we author. are very interested in what we talk about. We are. We are very interested about what we talk about. <laughs> well, That's why we talk keep talking. about very interesting things, <laughs> don't we? Um, but he is the author of Fight Club. He's written uh, 30 books. Um Famously heterosexual novel, Fight Club. Nothing yeah. gay about it. Nothing gay about it. So, again, that sort of uh, links with some, what we're going to be talking about today. But like I say, it did come out on September the 5th. I, I am going to be looking out for that one, I can tell you. Um, I heard him being interviewed, and he said that uh, somebody who, I don't know if it was a mentor of him when he was first writing, but said you should write about things that you find challenging or painful in life. And um, that's what drives him. And uh, he has a lot of life experience uh, being, as he, in his words, I think it was uh, same, same sex attracted, or I think that was the phrase. And that was something, you know, that for a long time was, was challenging. And 
even though George was being funny just now, uh, Fight Club, I think, is a very clear example of that with this like alter ego character being everything that is not sort of wimpy and, you know, effeminate and, yeah. you know, because... Hyper-masculine sex god. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, yeah so that was yeah. my other little news tidbit. I've forgotten about that. Um, oh, thank you for throwing that in. I'm going to look out for that as well. So, here we are. Um, George, this is you this episode. Yeah, you didn't want to take the reins on this one? Well, I think it was your turn because last time I did some noir, so yes, I, I did. Don't yes, oh, I, 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 I did. Hey, can you put the sword down? There's no need for all this. The pen. She's brandishing. The pen is stronger. Well, neither, neither of them are going to do you any well over video call. Whatever. Today we're talking about queer narratives, my dear, lovely listeners. We've been talking about this idea for a little while. I, um, as a self-identified queer person myself, I have a deep love for queer lit and uh, find it a particularly reliable crutch when looking to see that other part of myself represented in the stories that I consume. So, you know the deal. We're going to take a look at the history of it. We're going to uh, break down sort of some of the misconceptions and what it's actually good for. And we're going to start right now. Mum, it's your least favorite part of the show. Don't say the bloody ancient Greeks because I'll poke you over the internet. Ooh, it's the ancient Greeks. Ah! Every time. Jesus. Yeah, the ancient Greeks were gay as the day was long. And in some cases, long as the day was gay. Ooh. Hey, yo. Folks, anyway, classical mythology has, like, a ton of gay rep, um, but the problem is that most of it is patriarchal. Say that patriarchal? fast. Patriarchal. Patriarchal? I don't Pat know. I would say patriarchal. It's about men. It's men. It's male men. focus. Um, you can see in stories, Zeus, Poseidon, Heracles, Apollo, they've all got male lovers attributed to them. And though the word transgender did not exist... Gender mutability was all over the place in Greek mythology. Um, a person's sex was changed at will by the gods. You know, a shepherd was changed from a man to a woman by Artemis because he sees the goddess bathing in the nude. Uh, the prophet Tiresias was changed into a woman for seven years for displeasing Hera. You know, you see sort of the male centricness of it all. It's very like, ooh, yeah, gender is a mutable uh, fluid thing. Why the gods but, not? Mm, why the gods not indeed. But most of the time, womanhood was inflicted as like a punishment, which kind of gives you an idea as to... Not sure I the like way that. that they I just say. It. Yeah. I didn't like that. But you get other, like, more beautiful stories as well. Achilles and Patroclus, uh, not explicitly written as lovers by Homer, um, but after the fact, several authors certainly wrote them as such. Aeschylus, Plato, and Aeschines all either wrote the two of them as lovers or argued for Homer's implicit understanding of their love. So lots in this period writing about uh, homosexuality, queer relationships. Um, one very notable Greek poet, Sappho, uh, 
Her name is the etymological basis for the word sapphic and was born on the island of Lesbos, uh, which does the exact same for the word lesbian. Um, her sexuality was hotly debated because of a mistranslation, um, but it, it is sort of, it's a little bit like, she came from Lesbos. She's a lesbo. Uh, so probably is, female. Yeah, well, a female <laughs> lover. Um, certainly a lady, a lady loving ladies. Uh, so Sappho is like a huge um, ancient well of queer art and expression that is not male-centric. I really love that. Um, and one thing, you know, this is a really different culture. Uh, you have to remember in, in ancient Greece at the time, they, you, they practiced pederasty, which is... Sounds like a drink. It does a bit. It a holds, cocktail? Yeah. Have a pederasty. It kind of okay. sounds like a drink a rat would make for you, though. So it's like... <laughs> It's like, it sounds like you're saying the word nasty, nasty and the word pedant. Well, anyway, it's it's basically a romantic relationship between two men, an older man and a younger man, the Erastes and the Aramenos. Um, oh. That's a whole other thing. Oh, what's up? Well, I just, that made me think of Call Me By My Name. Yep, exactly right. Because um, in that story, it's a, a much, quite a significantly older man and a, I think the younger man is like 17 or 18 at that time of the story. So it fits right in, even though that was written much more currently. No, but it's a, it's It's an absolutely accurate point. Um, You see it recreated in literature all the time. I don't want to get too into the history of that just because it's like a whole social rite of passage almost. Um, But it's certainly built space in the culture for queer art and queer expression to exist. Um, Likewise, we have things like the erotic poetry of Catullus uh, directed at other men, Um, the Satyricon by Petronius, a Latin work of fiction detailing the misadventures of Encolpius and his lover, a handsome and promiscuous 16-year-old boy. Well, don't know about that. Hey, uh, <laughs> no, I mean no. Yeah, in the right circumstances. That, well, ooh, oh, no, oh, obviously not. I, no, Mike. I'm Mike, <laughs> go on. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, so that was written in the first century AD during the reign of Nero, and it is the earliest known text of its kind depicting homosexuality. Um, and when we say depicting homosexuality, we're talking about specific, um, like, uh, interactions between uh, same-sex characters, presumably. Yeah. Okay. Just clarifying. They were kissing and stuff. Oh, right, yeah. They were touching butts. Making out. They were, yeah. They were playing tonsil hockey. Getting off with each um, other. Okay, that's not... <laughs> That's what we used to say when I was in school. That's what people still say now. It's not a euphemism at all. It's very direct. Anyway, moving okay. away from the Greeks and the Romans a little bit. In Japan in the early 11th century, yeah, let's go to Murasaki Shikibu. <laughs> yeah, let's get away from what you're talking about. Okay. You're being a lech. I knew as soon as anything bringing up sex was going to come up, you were going to 
be gross about it. Murasaki Shikibu wrote the tale of Genji in the early 11th century. The title character Hikaru Genji is rejected by the lady Utsutsemi and instead sleeps with her brother. So, can I just clarify this story? So there's a guy and he's pursuing... Hikaru Genji. Yeah, he's pursuing a woman. Lady Utsutsemi. And instead of forcing him his kind of relationship with her, he goes and sleeps with her brother. Yeah. Because the brother is better looking? Yeah, actually, legit, Genji... So, it, uh, I got a little quote here. Genji pulled the boy down beside him. Genji, for his, for his part, or so one is informed, found the boy more attractive than his chilly sister. Oh, so she was frigid, then, is what Dang. you're saying. Dang! Can you imagine getting passed up and then getting your sibling hooked up with and then being like, I don't even care, you're frigid B-word. Yeah. So that's a little bit. I wanted to just like dive over to Japan. We're going back over to Italy. Sorry, did you? Were you going to say something? No, no, no. It probably would have been inappropriate. You carry on. Shocker. Um, in Italy, in 1652, jumping forward a little bit, Antonio Rocco's Alcibiades, the schoolboy, was published anonymously. Shocker, because he was a priest. Oh. Uh, <laughs> It is written as a defense of homosexual sodomy, uh, a very explicit work, one of the first uh, written since ancient times. Uh, its intended purpose is hotly debated, whether it is satire, a defense of pederasty, or a work of pornography, um, but it is sometimes referred to as the first, the first homosexual novel. Uh, I, I, I don't know. It gets... You know, you bring a priest into things and it always gets tricky. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, I think a little bit of that is present context, but it is certainly true. And actually that it leads right into what we're following up with after 1652, looking at the Age of Enlightenment. Oh, of I love that when the light bulbs went on. Yep, that's exactly what it was, Mum. Yeah. They turned all the lights on. Um, no, they start thinking and shit in it. Um, and they, <laughs> we start thinking about human nature. Um, but unfortunately we also begin to involve the church, uh, and kind of meld that with state run legal systems. Yeah. Uh, so we have like a lot more visibility because we recognize that homosexuality isn't something actually bad. Um, but it does become legally very bad. Uh, in 1533, the UK passes... As in illegal. As in illegal, yes. Yeah, very <laughs> bad in the legal sense, as in illegal. Illegal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in 1533, the UK passes the Buggery Act, at the Buggery. time less applicable to... Sorry. Stop it. I'm sorry, that was a word that was thrown about when I was a kid as a curse word... And I had no idea as a young child what that word meant, just saying. So, yeah. and, you know, and then actually finding out as I was growing up that it had a literal meaning, it kind of just, you know, plays yeah, with my, my schema. It's like uh, the importance of being earnest. Oscar Wilde writes about that. It's, oh, I forget. Bunbury. He says he's off to see his cousin Bunbury, and that's what he means the whole time is... Butt stuff. It's buggery. Yeah, buggery. 
Um, so in 1533, the Buggery Act, uh, trying to put like the religious dictum of you aren't allowed to do sexual acts if they don't lead to procreation begins to sort of hem in the freedom of expression for queer people and especially writers. We start to see lots of references to Greece, a uh, society known <laughs> to be accepting of queer lifestyle, right? You can see sort of from writing in that time period uh, a lot of returns to antiquity as a, as a way to nod towards queer themes. Um, so this, what year was this? 1553, the Buggery Act? Yeah, so this is the 1500s and the 1600s. Um, you see a lot of those uh, references to Greece. And then as we move into the 1700s and 1800s in Europe, the, you know, we've progressed to the point where there is the death penalty for sodomy. So you can no longer publish anything that has overt gay themes. You can no longer distribute anything. You can't write anything or you might be put to death. Um, None of those nice Greek potteries with the shaggy paintings on the side. Yeah. Michelangelo saying, yeah, I'll paint your Sistine chapels. Gotta paint a bunch of little dudes with their dicks out on it, though. Little tiny dicks. Sorry. Tiny itty-bitty dicks. Well, they're way up there, you know. It doesn't look that perspective. Um, (laughs) So there is a lot of, like, coded subtextual ways of writing about homosexuality. That's why you hear about queer coding now. Like, you can talk about queer-coded Disney villains. These are characters that are queer subtly. And that is why a lot of times you will introduce such an idea to straight people and they will be like, that character is not gay. It's like, yeah, we hid them from you so that you could not take them. Yeah. I mean, here's here's my question, though, because you talk about Disney characters. So is this something that, like, somebody who was a Disney artiste and they consciously did this, or has it been interpreted after the fact? Interpreted. Interpretated. Um, after the fact, when people have watched them and said subconsciously they were making a queer character. Who can say? Well, because if you're going to say like queer coding is an actual thing people talk about and discuss and identify, then there must be some, you know. Oh, yeah, that's definitely true. There are definitely like authors who have like owned up to queer coding their characters on purpose. But I just I think... When, when it comes to, especially when it comes to, like, subtext, it's so hard to pin down where the point of intent comes in, you know? Like, is... Gosh, this is kind of a really big one. Like, when Bram Stoker wrote about Dracula, was he writing a gay story or was he writing an other character who absorbed like queer iconography or, 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 you know? Well, and so to that point, if homosexuality has always, you know, for, for a long time was, you know, kind of demonized, if you like, then, um, yeah, I mean, they'd kill you for it. Yeah, exactly. And in some places, as we know, they still do. But um, then other and homosexual kind of become synonymous, don't they? 
like well one, one in the same i'm not saying that it's right and i hopefully it's not something that routinely well it does happen today but um yeah but we're talking historically you know well i can't i can't write about a gay character but the characteristics of a gay character would be they would be bad or you know evil or unpleasant or whatever so i'll just write that in place of saying openly oh they're a homosexual well right you know bad unpleasant and evil are all just like code words for not straight yeah like you know and like other and it's true that queer narratives are often othered because of their existence in a heteronormative space mm-hmm. I think the other is not a content in the same way that, like, queer stories are, right? Like, you could tell a story about many different people and tell a story about othering at the same time. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's sort of a, it's a, it's a broader... Umbrella. Um, yeah, that's, that's my opinion of it anyway. But we see a lot of this in the gothic you know, we talked about this when we were talking about horror, um, but you have a lot of fiction authors like Matthew Lewis, William Thomas Beckford, Francis Latham, who are all homosexual and sublimated queer themes into their writing using quote-unquote transgressive genres like horror fiction. Um, the title character of Matthew Lewis's The Monk from 1796 falls in love with a young man, Rosario, and though Rosario is later revealed to be a woman, the gay subtext is very clear, right? Yeah. Like, he, he falls in love with a man. Um, there's a Black Adder episode about exactly the same thing. Queer representation at its finest. Uh, um, Bob. Bob, yep. <laughs> right, Bob. All right, um, my lord. Die slapping. Sorry. Just a couple of chaps off to have a jolly gay day. Sheridan Lee Faneuil Sorry, go on. Also had a novella, Carmilla, in 1872, which was the first lesbian vampire story. And also, I found out in researching for this, influenced Dracula for Bram Stoker in 97. I thought it would have been the other way around, but it seems like... Bram Stoker was taken from... I got. I have to stop referring to the vampire lesbian movies as B-movies. They are, they are cultural, you know, iconography. They really pull their weight. Um, and to be honest, Dracula is also kind of, as we were talking about, is kind of gay. Um, <laughs> when Count Dracula drums, jumps in front of all the female vampires and is like, stay away from Jonathan Harker. This man belongs to me. Me in his cape and his tight black pants and you don't get much gayer than that. I've got to say, you don't. Um, so we've got a we've got a lot of horror gay crossover moving into like out of the eighteen hundreds or or towards the end of the eighteen hundreds rather. In eighteen seventy, we see the first American gay novel, Joseph and His Friend, a story of Pennsylvania. I think that sounds like a beautiful title. I'm sorry. I I agree. I also think it sounds gay as hell, which is part of why I like it. (laughs) Um, It's the story of a newly engaged young man who finds himself actually falling in love with another man instead. uh, Written by Bayard Taylor. 
Robert K. Martin called it quite explicit in his adoption of a political stance toward homosexuality, and notes that the character Philip argues for the rights of those who cannot shape themselves according to the commonplace pattern of society. And I have to say, I love that as a quote. I really do. It, That's a crazy line. It's a great, I mean, anybody who argues for the rights of those who cannot shape themselves according to the commonplace pattern of society deserves, you know, a leg up or That's a, a leg over or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Whichever, you know, whichever whatever works. way you like it. You deserve some legs. As you like it. I'm talking to which, I mean, you know, himself, I think, wrote... Uh, I just sorry that completely this is completely off and I think what year are we in? We're in the late nineteenth century. Just thinking about uh Shakespeare and, and his kind of gender Oh I bend in, you know. Yeah, lots of gender mutability within Shakespeare and also uh I think three of the sonnets are directed to men. So just straight up, you know, writing queer lit himself. Um sorry that was a bit of a moving off. No, it's okay. Hey, listen. The, one of the reasons I wanted to like slow down and really go through the history for this one is that one of the arguments you hear all the time is that queer identity of any flavor is a fad or something new. But don't you? It's it's almost older. Like people are go just on, trying. Yeah. Well, it's like people are just trying to say. Um, Somebody invented this for their own amusement and next week they'll be thinking of something else. I mean, I think I've said to you before, I'm not sure if we said it on air, but I know that I've worked with like grade school teachers who've made reference to um, kids who end up going to a specific high school in a neighborhood and that they all get influenced (laughs) into being transgender. And I'm like, you know what? I... I think... Bro, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think just from my very limited knowledge, and, you know, I'm talking from the perspective of a, as an older heterosexual female. So, you know, my experience is limited. But um, that I... But I know pretty, like, 100% that people don't just choose, you know, the way they feel about... Yeah their bodies, their sexuality, the, the people they're attracted to. You know, these things are who you are. They're who you are. Yeah. I I refuse anyone to point me towards, uh, like, a feeling that springs from inside their body that they chose. That they, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. That, like, you willed into being. Because I don't ever feel that way. But also, if if you're right... I don't mean you, Mum. Obviously, you're perfect and you are right all the time. Um, <laughs> yeah, if, raised the right way. Agrees with this. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, continue. Only when on a hot mic. Um, but uh, when, if you're right in like you're thinking, oh, this is all a fad. Homosexuality is 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 taking over. People are being so easily convinced. Okay. Why the fuck haven't you convinced anyone to be on your dumbass, racist, homophobic side? Yeah, I'm sorry. If they're so new and they're putting up crazy numbers, it looks like you just got shucked out of the game, man. You've had plenty of time to up your numbers. It's not our fault you suck and you smell like beef jerky and Mountain Dew. (laughs) I have no idea where that came from, but all right. But also, you know, like, if we take this idea literally that people are just convinced 
to make choices about you yeah. know their sexuality or their you know gender or whatever then why why do they feel like they have had to hide those things you know mm. if it was a fashion or a trend you know like wearing flares or platform shoes yeah you would be out there in the world so don't give me that bullshit this is about people and yeah. you know who we are yeah it's also it's incredible to talk about it being a fad or even just a choice when people are still murdered for it yeah why would you, you choose know? something that is so hard no one yeah no one is choosing to yeah <sighs> okay so we <laughs> go back we're Come on, George. really going off books for a little bit um but yeah so so talking about the rights of those who cannot shape themselves according to the commonplace Wait. pattern of society Wait. that's a great quote it is it is an overarching message for what we are all about but also what we think narrative is all about. We think about people like Oscar Wilde, who had such a huge impact on the English-speaking literary canon and was a big old big queer. Big old queer. He was, yeah. And he was big he was, as well. I mean, he was a big guy. Oh, he was massive. Yeah, wasn't he, like, super tall? He was super tall, and he was, like, built. I mean, I don't know if he was muscly or if he was oh. just fat, actually, because I think he liked the... Uh, you know, the high life, him. but whatever. Yeah. That's not the point. Get fat. That's yeah. the shit. I love it. But he, yeah. Expand. But when we say um, a big queer, he was big. Yeah, he, no, he, he wrote, I mean, he had such an influence on the culture at large, but also on queer literature, the picture, the portrait of Dorian Gray, which one is it? Portrait of Dorian Gray, I believe. Dorian Dorian Gray. Gay. Hey, he was gay. Dorian, Dorian Gray is Gray. gay. Um, the importance of being earnest, also gay. Uh, Oscar Wilde himself, himself sentenced to hard labor for... Being gay. <laughs> yeah, so, you know. Essentially. Been around for a while. Been getting tortured for it for a while. Um, anyway. So we move into the 1900s, uh, and I want to talk about The City and the Pillar, a 1946 novel by someone you may have heard of, Gore Vidal. I've heard of... You've heard of him. Yeah. It, you know, it's a recognizable name. It's hard to forget, to be honest. Gore? God damn. Oh, yeah. It's a great name. I mean... So, The City and the Pillar is recognized as the first post-World War II novel whose openly gay and well-adjusted protagonist was not killed off at the end for defying social norms. Uh, if you have read any queer lit, if you're queer yourself, uh, or... Potentially, if you are in any other marginalized group and you have seen stories attempted to be recreated, you will know that oftentimes the gay person has to die at the end for unknown reasons. Sorry! It's like, you're sorry, dead. Sorry, we did write you a little story about it. your own community, but we did obviously had to kill you for it's Jesus. It's like being invited to a wedding but having to sit at the table at the back of the room. That is exactly what it's like, yeah. Uh, but it's like... Um, Not that that's ever happened to me, ever. Just saying. Yeah, sounds like you've got a bit of an axe to grind. Nope. In opera, the rule is if the woman's name is the title of the opera, that woman will die by the end of the opera. In queer lit, you get usually you get two out of three. Either they're well-written, they end up happy, or they live. You get two of the three of those. You cannot choose all three. Oh, they 
sorry, say it again. They're well written. They end up happy, uh -huh. or you live, or they live. You can do yeah, one yeah. of those three things, kind of. Or you, you can do two of those three. Two things. of the three. Can't have sorry. one. It's like cheap, fast, and good. You ever hear that one? No, you but it makes sense. You can get it cheap sense. and fast, but then it won't be good. You can get it cheap and good, but then it won't be fast. Yeah. Anyway, oh, oh don't pull faces at me. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to pay attention to where we're going next. Gore Vidal. Oh. Yeah. So what happened to him? Uh, he got blacklisted to the extent that no major newspaper or magazine would review any of his novels for six <sighs> years. Like, dang, dude. Uh, the New York Times refused to publish advertisements for him. Well, I'm off the New York Times anyway. Every time yeah, you find, look at them online, they're like, give us your money. You can't look oh, at it. Oh, God, I hate it. Goodbye. <laughs> Other notable works of the 40s and 50s include Jean Genet's semi-autobiographical Our Lady of the Flowers in 1943 and The Thief's Journal in 1949, Yukio Mishima's Confessions of a Mask from 1949, Umberto Saba's Ernesto, written in 1953, published posthumously in 1975. I really want to read Whoa, that one. That's like 22 years later. And Giovanni's Room, written in 1956 by James I quite Baldwin. fancy that one, to be honest. Just the name. I have had that James one Baldwin. on a list for a while. Yeah, he's excellent. Um, incredible wit. Uh, I had to put down a, a book of his essays uh, not too long ago for just cackling. Yes, that can be quite irritating, George, but go on. I know, yeah, you're so funny. I have to put your books down. Um, no, just listening to other... you cackle was what I meant. Wow, okay. <laughs> Sorry. It served a little better by you doing the cackle that I inherited right after <laughs> saying that. <laughs> oh. And two, thank you very much. Um, so we see that like build up through the 40s and 50s, and we see queer culture being expanded and, and sort of having more freedom to express itself and, and express itself in literature. Unfortunately, we see that spread into the proliferation of gay bars, which become increasingly targeted by the police state in the U.S. Gay bars? Gay pars, did you say? Gay bars. Gay what is a gay par? I don't know. I misheard you, obviously. It's, it's a gay golf course. <laughs> gay bar of the song of the same name. Oh, Gay Bar by Electric Six. Yeah, yeah. That's a good song. fantastic song. So it's good. You know, we, we had more expansion of queer spaces. It's bad because when the socially dominant, violent, heteronormative, patriarchal society sees that, there's nothing they love to do more than to break it up. On the 28th of June in 1969, this reaches a fever pitch in the most famous queer uprising in all of history. Um, the Stonewall Riots, led by Marsha P. Johnson, uh, where the patrons of the Stonewall Inn fought back against a police raid. Uh, this went on for weeks. Um, activists are organizing and marching, uh, and by establishing, like, newspapers and, and things of this nature in support of uh, gay men and lesbians, we see this new, like, politicized take on literature. 
Uh, and then suddenly, explicitly gay novels are being published all the time. Uh, Edmund White, Alan Hollinghurst, Audre Lorde, uh, Adrian Rich, Armistead Maupin, all of them writing explicitly about that politicized experience where the intersection of queerness and the rest of their life, you know, sometimes other marginalized communities, sometimes where it interacts with whiteness and, like, the main culture. So that's a lot about the West. In Also in the 1900s, we see a lot of, I guess, I, I would call it, like, resistance writing. Um, during the martial law period in Taiwan, the Kuomintang government focuses on traditional Confucius values. Like the Christians in Europe, this means yes to progeny, no to sodomy. Um, <laughs> That's very catchy. Yeah, it's going to be my campaign slogan. When um, you're running for... Actually, it's going to be the other way around. It's going to be yes to sodomy, no to progeny. Exactly. No babies. Um, so this, you know, the, the modern family becomes very heterosexual in public in the public eye and the discourse of same-sex desire kind of becomes non-existent. Um, however, Pai Sien Young, pardon me on that translation, um, writes Moon Dream, Jade Love, Youthfulness, and 17 Years Old and Lonely, a series of novellas and short stories exploring male homosexual desire, which were published in Jan Dai Wenchu. Um, he also published A Sky Full of Bright Twinkling Stars in 1969, which follows gay characters who then appear in his 1983 novel, uh, Crystal Boys. Set in 1970s Taipei, Crystal Boys is commonly identified as the first Chinese novel that depicts the life struggles in the homosexual community and that grew out of that particular socio-historical environment of Taiwan in the 1970s. So it's, you know, it happens everywhere, all the time. The, the greater point of this entire history is that, you know, when, when people need to express themselves, they will write and they will make art and they will create mirrors to see themselves in. We got a lot of other stuff like gay pulp novels and that into the, into the 80s and 90s, but uh, you, see, you see the development of real queer theory in the 1990s in academia in the West, and then we're sort of off to the races. Um, just a good note, Judith Butler's Gender Trouble is a huge harbinger of this uh, because it's, it's her saying, there's no such thing as an ideal man or woman. Gender's not real. It's a performance. And they don't like that when you say that. So um, I just want to sort of not summarize, but sort of my takeaway is that, you know, uh, homosexuality goes back centuries, millennia. Um, number one, and it's been written about for as long as, you know, people have been falling in love, ultimately. Uh, and I think that what, apart from giving you a little history lesson, as we always try and do, um, George has illustrated that there is plenty of gay literature out there, good, solid gay literature and stuff that you maybe didn't even realise was um, gay literature or authors who've written... Um, uh, stories with gay characters I did want to mention a book because uh, when we were first talking about this he was saying about you know what it was like like my first exposure as a young person to any kind of queer um, literature or queer um, anything and basically there wasn't there was nothing <laughs> right so I grew up in the um, 1970s in 
rural England and anything that might possibly have been homosexual was either ridiculed, as in like, you know, 1970s um, sitcoms. A bit like over here, they had uh, soap, but I think that was in the 80s where Billy Crystal played a, a gay character. Mm. But anyway, when I was growing up, they were either ridiculed and made like the butt of everybody's joke in sitcoms or demonised and presented in the news media as, you know, sexual predators or um something bad so that that's kind yeah. of um that's that was my experience growing up and it wasn't until i was sort of my late teens and early 20s that i heard or saw anything different one of the first books i do remember is a book called oranges are not the only fruit which by a, a british author called jeanette winterson published in 1985 um she was she wrote from experience i believe because that book um was uh, about a girl growing up in a highly strict Pentecostal household. It's about her fighting yeah. against this religious kind of environment, but then also identifying as a, a lesbian kind of thing, which Jeanette Winterson actually did by the time she was 16. So a lot of it was written from her own experience. I am proud to say that that book has been included in GCSE and A-level curriculums. GCSEs, for those of you who don't know, are exams you have to take when you're 16 in the UK in order to continue with your education. And then you take your A-levels at 18, which allow you to go to university. But um, that book has been included on the curriculum of both those uh, examinations in different um, school districts in the United Kingdom. So um, you know what? Their exposure hopefully will be a not more diverse than mine ever was and, um, and why not that literature is out there it's good storytelling as we're always talking about you know we're telling tales don't really give a flying fart about you know whether it's about girls and girls and boys and boys and girls and boys and you know i mean i do i i, I want i want queer literature specifically uh but i mean you know but what you say is true, you know, it, it matters most story. that, yeah, and it's, it's good to, the most important thing to learn to do as a human being is to resist the fear of seeing something unfamiliar or unknown. Instead, just try and learn about it. Yeah. When I was younger, I did not like the idea that I was bisexual i fought against it and to be honest i used like homophobic humor to mask that and coming out the other side of that it's definitely queer literature that helped me be less afraid of my own sexuality and sort of see myself reflected in other stories which is something we've said time and time again you know time and time again time and time again um, so we do have a George's Per real comprehensive list of not only narrative texts but books about uh queer theory, yes, or queer literature yeah. theory, um, which will be posted with the episode. Yeah, I just I kind of put it together because you were saying about how you hadn't had that exposure, and if you wanted to, you know, there is there's stuff out there that you would like. You know, yeah. the the Venn diagram is 
wide queer literature can be in any other kind of spec fic or yeah. any other kind of book format. It's like that whole Venn diagram thing that we are often referring to. Um, Jeanette Winterson, like I said, she wrote another book called uh, Winter Tale or something like that, which I really enjoyed also. Um, some of the ones, so when we did start talking about this, I was like, oh, I don't think I've read any, you know, apart from stuff that I've read more recently. But um, I'm looking at some of the examples of Color Purple by Alice Walker. That's a great book. I think that has been on high school and curriculums, haven't it, George? I, I'm sure either you or your sister read that in high school. I think maybe she did. Yeah, I don't know. One of mine. And that's one that I read. Um, uh, Call Me By Your Name. Uh, Call Me By My you Name. about that one? No, by your name. Yes, Call Me By Your Name. By... Um, Andre Ackerman Asiman? Asiman? I don't know. Asiman? No, hey now. Um, I've read that one myself. <laughs> but um, that's a great book. Um, the Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. That one is a modern retelling of the love story between Achilles and Patroclus. Very gay. Very uh, like explicit about that relationship. Hell Followed With Us by Andrew Joseph White. That's a YA book I read kind of recently. It's ah. all about, like, uh, if angels and demons were real and a fundamentalist cult tried to use one of their children as a demonic bioweapon. But through the power of true love and gay joy, they survive and make a queer utopia way worth it that book rules well and something else we talked about is i did go looking for some ya books because that that's usually my my kind of go to something that i do have quite a bit of reading experience with and there are a lot out there but because i hadn't read any of them i didn't feel confident um recommending any specifically but it you know there there are a whole bunch you just have to do a search on goggle and they're right there, but like I say, I didn't, I didn't feel real uh, comfortable recommending stuff that I had no knowledge of. I mean, some things sure. I only have a little knowledge of, but these I didn't have any. So another two things just to look out for if you are looking for queer lit to add to your repertoire, um, the Stonewall Book Awards is a thing that exists, uh, as well as Lambda Literary, uh, both of which celebrate and champion queer lit um in all its forms just like we do um but they have you know they have like a, a business we're just a couple of dorks we're just a couple of nerds we're just a couple of dorks yeah a couple of nerds but we thank you for sticking with us thank you mom for listening to my deluge about queer lit um it's very interesting i think you know i have to Swallow that bit of pill, everything comes back to the ancient Greeks, whatever. <laughs> um, I hope that some people, well, probably not anybody who listens to this is probably, you know, all pretty much clued into everything we've been talking about. But I'd like to think that somebody might listen to this and it makes them think twice and and consider reading something. Because, you know, because there's been like, Stories written about um, same-sex attraction since since the ancient Greeks. And I know, it's not my favourite, but 
they seem to have a handle on everything. Anyway, so I think that's us. I would check out our book list for this episode for sure if you've got any interest. Because it Yeah, it's gonna be a little bit expanded than usual. Yeah. But other than that, I got um do you have anything else, George? Thank you for that history. It was very detailed. And um, you know, who knew? I did want to mention actually something I I think I shared with you earlier though. Oh, are you trying to get in a last minute bit of page turning ASMR? Whatever. Turn the mics off. But the story of Alan Turin, who Oh yeah. Who um worked on the um I can't even remember what he did now. I'm such a liar. But uh, <laughs> it was a big old game. He worked gay. on the code breaking machine. Code breaking, he yeah. He was a big old. He was a big he old gay. A big old gay. That's right. He was the only gay in the village. In the Manchester um, village. That's right. That's what he did. But he. So the there was a book written about him called. Oh, the imitation game. The imitation game, and it was made into a comic book, which I just discovered today. And that included not just all of his um, scientific um, achievements, but also his personal life, which was an incredibly sad story. Um, yeah. Because he, he was I mean. imprisoned um, for being gay, and then when he came out, life was just a bit shit, I think. So. Yeah, he was imprisoned and, I believe, chemically castrated. Yeah. And then he took his own life. Yeah. Don't... You know, this, and at the end of the day, this is why we need to read um, <laughs> Queer Lit, because it will make it more obvious that you do not need laws that <laughs> mutilate and torture your civilians just because they might not make a baby. Also, science has progressed. Gay people are having babies now. They are. You don't even have, that's not even a good reason anymore. Yeah. Anyway, there is no good reason. Um, homophobia is whack. Uh, I am like Stone Cold Steve Austin. I put homophobes in coffins. We love you so much. Go tell some tales. And we hope to see you back here very often. Very often. This episode will be coming your way. Tell some tales. Read some gay. Good day. Good afternoon. Good, and good night. Good night. Auf Wiedersehen. Goodbye. <laughs>